0: People feeling that Pusher Man vibe this morning. I'm feeling it too. We opened our program, our conversation this morning in 1972. I was six years old in 1972. And like many young black couples at that time, my parents had just a few years earlier in 1970, left the urban streets of Washington, D.C. and resettled our family in the suburbs in the neighboring state of Maryland. And along with the exodus of many black folks from the city to the suburbs, there was at that time also a good number of white people who were also fleeing major urban cities across the country. Now, remember, this was just a few years after the 1968 riots, which all began, of course, as we know, after the assassination of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. So a lot of people, both white and black, were eager to make their way from those more densely populated areas into spaces where they would perhaps be more secluded, more spread out, and maybe even feel safer in their suburban homes than they did in the more closely held quarters of city life. So my parents were among that migration. And as white folks fled the city as well, they many times left behind theaters Theaters that ran movies marketed just to them and white theater owners were at once left with a whole lot of empty white movie theater seats with films ready to show that the black masses still populating those urban spaces weren't necessarily flocking to see. So white theater owners needed a new product. Something that would seduce black audiences into those empty white theater seats. And as always, keen observers in Hollywood quickly discovered a new market to exploit. So. In an attempt to capture the black movie going market in urban spaces where white folks had fled to the suburbs, Hollywood movie producers began letting more black folks through the gate and into the movie business. And major studios began producing low budget, fast production movies that many times were poorly photographed and edited, all written and directed by black artists and all starring black actors and actresses with urban inspired and often derogatorily stereotypical plot lines, always set in poor neighborhoods. And with the release of these films, eager to see their favorite black actors and images of themselves on the big screen, black moviegoers flocked to their neighborhood theaters, causing many of these films to completely exceed film producers' expectations. And often these movies broke box office Records. So white Hollywood executives and their black allies had successfully found a new consumer group, the black movie going market. And the goal of the studios then became to drain the maximum amount of dollars out of these urban spaces. So drug dealers, pimps and prostitutes, crooked cops and wayward detectives on the take all became the new vogue for black folks eager to identify and associate with slick and flashy characterizations of themselves in major movies on the big screen. And one white movie producer said at that time in 1972, this is what he said, brothers and sisters, he said, quote, We're only giving them what they want. We're only giving them what they want. And the clapback to that in 1972 came from a man who was once the former president of the Hollywood branch of the NAACP, a man named Junius Griffin. J-U-N-I-U-S, Junius Griffin. G-R-I-F-F-I-N, Junius Griffin. And here's what Brother Griffin said in 1972, quote, we will not tolerate the continued warping of our children's minds with the filth, violence, and cultural lies that are all pervasive in current productions of so-called black movies. The transformation from the stereotype step and fetch it to the super nigger on the screen is just another form of cultural genocide, end quote. And so it was Brother Junius, Brother Junius Griffin, who combined the words black and exploitation and coined the term black exploitation to describe this genre of movies that had arrived on the entertainment scene in 1971 and that had continued flourishing into 1972 black exploitation b l a x p l o i t a t i o n black exploitation and this covered a wide range of genres From crime to action films to martial arts flicks to westerns and horror films and to comedies and musicals as well. And one of the things that particularly excited black audiences about these films, one of the culturally specific things about the black movie going market is the importance of the soundtrack, the music that accompanies, that lays the foundation for the playing out of the film's plot. So, picking up on this, white producers and their black allies smartly discovered that a hot soundtrack distributed to black radio stations in urban markets could attract black audiences long before the film was actually released in theaters. So, black music producers and composers and singers, they went to work. They got busy. And among the most prolific of these... Brothers and sisters, was Curtis Mayfield, who brought us Mavis Staples and the songs and vocals from the film A Piece of the Action, starring Bill Cosby and Sidney Poitier in 1977. Brother Curtis also brought us Aretha Franklin's songs and vocals from the film Sparkle, which makes me smile, in 1976. Giving him some. Then he can feel remember that? Brother Curtis also brought us the songs and vocals of the staple singers in the film Let's Do It Again in nineteen seventy five. Brother Curtis also brought us Gladys Knight's songs and vocals in the film Claudine in 1974. Keep away from him, Mr. Welfare. Y'all remember that, Claudine. And in 1972, beloved Brother Curtis Mayfield, God rest his soul in peace, power, and paradise. Brother Curtis in 1972 brought us his own songs and vocals in the film Superfly. And the song that opened up today's program, Push a Man, comes from the soundtrack to the film Superfly, which was released in 1972. And Superfly is one of the few soundtracks ever to outgross the film it accompanied. So in other words, the soundtrack made more money than the actual film did. The album is considered in many ways pioneering in that it had a level of social consciousness that was instructive as well as uplifting the words and music by brother Curtis Mayfield was able to reach and teach and inspire all at the same time in the same way that brother Marvin Gaye's what's going on album was also a commentary on black social life and social justice at that time now true to its black exploitation roots much of the film Superfly was about poverty and drug abuse. And the song we opened up with this morning, Pusher Man, is a prime example of that, of those themes. Now, most of us associate the Pusher Man with the corner drug dealer who is peddling marijuana and cocaine and heroin. That tends to be our initial conception of the Pusher Man, the black boy dope dealer. That ever-ready presence who, just like the white Hollywood movie producer, is there giving them what they want. People pushing things on us that they say we want. People pushing things on us that they say we want. I have had four pushers in my life as a drug addict. And we've talked about that extensively in this space and we are not going to talk about that this morning. And for some of you, when I've talked about those things right here in the past, for many of you, you thought I was talking about something that you could in no way, shape or form relate to. Many of you thought to yourself, I have never had a dealer, a pusher in my entire life. I know not of what the brother speaks of. And so I'm here this morning with you to share with you that you do, in fact, have a pusher man. In your life, you do. And you probably have several pushes in your life right now. There are people, entities, energetic forces, corporations, big businesses pushing things on you right now that they say you want. 1972, the white movie producer, we're only giving them what they want. 2017, we're only giving them what they want. The rationale and the reasons are timeless. Your pushers have been doing this for a very long, long time, way back into history for hundreds and hundreds of years. So this morning, I am going to formally introduce you to just one of your pushers. And this may be who knows the number one pusher man in your life today. This pusher is sneaking his product into your everyday life in ways subtle and covert. And he has most of us hooked On what he's selling. And we faithfully buy it almost every single day. In ways both conscious and unconscious. And just like any good drug dealer on the street corner. This pusher man gives you just a taste of his product. And almost everything you buy at your local grocery store. His product is in all those packaged and processed quote unquote food items. You mindlessly buy every single day. This pusher man is very Good at what he does. The number one pusher man in many of our lives is selling us white gold every single day. And you are depending upon him every single day in some way, shape, or form. And he is always there to give you what you want and not what you need. Your pusher man is selling you white gold. He is your daddy and he has you hooked on his sugar, white gold, sugar, and to be more specific, sucrose. Refined sugar made from sugarcane and beets, stripped of all its vitamins and natural simple sugars and processed into chemical crystalline granules for mass human consumption. Sucrose. It is the one addiction that most Americans share. Sugar, sucrose, white gold and sugar has a history that is vast and deep and profitable and heartbreaking.
1: Not so very long ago, sugar, the stuff you dumped in your coffee this morning, was called white gold for the fortune it guaranteed everyone who manufactured it. Well, almost everyone. Slaves worked it, Europeans consumed it, traded it, and dreamt about it, and nations went to war over it. Sugar was the petroleum of its time, and Cuba was the oil field everyone wanted to tap. For centuries, cane juice was the lifeblood of Cuban existence. If you grew sugar cane and had a way to crush out the juice, you would become very wealthy indeed. But to harness that wealth, you needed brawn, and lots of it. The guarapo is about 20% sucrose, and sucrose, of course, is the sweet molecule that we're after in the refinement process. The remaining 80% is mostly water, and to get it, the crystals, the sugar crystals, you have to boil that 80% of water away. And traditionally, this was done in a series of kettle-like vats that were tended around the clock by the slaves, usually in four-hour shifts because the heat was so intense. It was literally boiled and skimmed and boiled and reboiled until the sugar crystals finally appeared. Just how did the juice of the sugarcane plant become so precious? And why did almost every aspect of Cuban life revolve around its production? Even more importantly, why did Cuban history become a story of sugar? The answer lies, like all good answers, in the past. European eyes first gazed upon Cuba on October 28, 1492. Christopher Columbus, in the service of the King of Spain, went ashore on the far eastern edge of the island and was awed by what he saw. He wrote in his diary that same day, I have never seen anything so beautiful. The country around the river is full of trees, beautiful and green and different from ours, each with flowers, and its own kind of fruit. There are many birds of all sizes that sing very sweetly, and there are many palms different from those in Guinea or Spain. I took the small boat ashore and approached two houses that I thought belonged to fishermen. The people fled in fear. There were many fire hearths, and I believed that many people lived together in each house. I ordered that not one thing be touched, and thus it was done. Well-intentioned though it was, Columbus's no-touch policy didn't last long. According to legend, on a subsequent voyage from the Canary Islands, Columbus received a parting gift of several sugarcane plants. At the time, sugarcane was available throughout Europe, but was exotic and expensive. Europeans associated cane sugar with the richness of India, where it originated, and with stories of long camel caravans that transported it across vast deserts. The possibility of developing the sugar industry under the Spanish crown appealed to Columbus. As the story goes, Columbus planted a few young plants on Hispaniola, a large island to the east of Cuba. The combination of sun, rain, and fertile soil were perfect, and the plants thrived. When he returned to Spain, Columbus reported enthusiastically to Queen Isabella that the cane planted on Hispaniola grew faster than anywhere else in the world. His report spread quickly across Europe, especially among farmers and wealthy landowners, who were eager to try cane farming themselves. Hundreds of Spaniards and other Europeans migrated to Cuba and Hispaniola to establish cane farms, and within less than 25 years of Columbus's first voyage, the first shipment of milled cane sugar was exported from the New World to the Old.
0: mention of the island Hispaniola, where the sugarcane grew faster than any other place at that time. That island of Hispaniola is the same island today that is shared by the countries Haiti and the Dominican Republic. And to this very day, there are huge sugar plantations in the Dominican Republic where workers are often forced to live in what amounts to slave labor camps, all to cut sugarcane and boil down its natural juices to produce the acidic sugar crystals that are then mass exported out of the DR and into other countries like the United States. You also heard mention there of the island of Cuba, another country that is key in understanding the global economic influence of sugar. To this very day, among the wealthiest of all the sugar barons, Is a family of Cuban-born brothers currently living in Palm Beach, Florida, who run the FanJul Corporation. F-A-N-J-U-L FanJul Corporation. They own the largest sugar plantation in the Dominican Republic. And when you see Domino Sugar, Domino Dominican no sugar on your supermarket shelves, you are seeing a product of the Fanjul brothers. So we're going to get into all of that this morning, the story of sugar and more importantly, the deadly impact that the overconsumption of sugar has on our bodies. Many of us are addicted. In fact, I would say that most of us are addicted and we don't even know it. We are unaware of it. Many of us. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the mindlessness of it all and how to bring some conscious awareness to our mindlessness of sucrose, which is refined sugar. That's exactly what we're talking about today.